Thanks for listening to the Master Brewers podcast. Did you know that Master Brewers offers a wide range of technical resources for breweries of all sizes? Whether you're new to brewing or a seasoned expert, join our community to connect with key players in the profession and stay up to date on the latest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Become a member of Master Brewers with code BEER2022 to save 20% on your membership dues now through December 31st. United We Brew. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. We really did shave off a lot of time, about 24 hours per propagation, which is huge in a big production facility like New Belgium, where you know, every second counts some days. (laughs) Is your brewery just doing things the way they've always been done? Or is someone like Paige optimizing processes to uncover new efficiencies and tremendous savings? Hi, my name is Paige Lasondak, and I am a senior scientist with New Belgium Brewing in Fort Collins, Colorado. Paige, there's a long list of reasons why a brewery might want to handle propagation in-house What's the biggest reason in your opinion? Yeah, so the biggest reason in my personal opinion is just the control aspect of it. Um, You can control how much oxygen it's getting. You control what cell count it's getting to. You're also able to um, do kind of quality checks all along the length of that propagation period. So you can check for microcontamination, just generic yeast health stats and everything. Um, And it just makes it a lot easier um, on yourself when you're able to prop yeast when you need it instead of having to rely on a third party to ship it to you. Okay, we're going to hear about some improvements you made to the propagation process, but let's start with the baseline. What did status quo look like at New Belgium? Yeah, so the way we've always done it is um, we take a slant with the yeast strain that we're targeting um, and we'll take one inoculation loopful of that slant, and we'll put it into a 500 milliliter baffled flask with 150 milliliters of 
growing medium in it. Um, in our situation, we just use wort from our brew houses. Um, and we would let that flask shake for 48 hours on a shaker table at 125 uh, rotations per minute. Um, after those 48 hours, we would step up that sample. Um, and so what we mean by that is we'll take a small sample off just to get uh, cell count viability and a micro uh, contamination check. We'll put it on plates and see how it all grows. Um, and then from there, we pour the remaining liquid into a 2,000 milliliter baffled flask with one liter of wort in it. Um, and then we would let that shake on the shaker table for 24 hours. Um, after that, we put those flasks into a keg, which has 30 liters of wort in it. And then we hook it up to a sterile air filtration rig um, and just bubble some oxygen through it for about uh, 24 to 48 hours, depending on the strain that we were propping. And then after that, the brewers take it and they put it into our cellar, our yeast cellar for propagation. So we have two different step ups there where the first one, um, we're putting it into seven to 13 hectoliters of wort um, and we allow it to prop to a targeted cell count. So we're no longer on a time based uh, requirement for our propagation. Uh, we give the brewers a targeted cell count. And once it reaches that cell count, they move it into the next volume of wort, which is anywhere from 75 to 133 hectoliters. Um, and we allow that to propagate until it reaches the next targeted cell count. Um, and then after that, we pitch it out into our cellar and let it ferment out. And then we'll harvest it and keep harvesting it for several generations after that. Okay, cool. Going back to that lab um, step, um, I'm not, um, I'm actually not, I can imagine what it looks like, but um, I don't. I don't think I've ever used a baffled flask. Uh, what, ex what exactly is that and, and what's special about that? Yeah, so a baffled flask is, um, we use glass in our lab uh, for, you know, sterility aspect. We can autoclave it and everything. Um, and so it's basically just a flask with three kind of divots at the bottom of it. And the purpose of a baffled flask while it's shaking is it kind of adds a little more agitation, which allows more oxygen to get into solution. Um, so it's just a little more efficient at adding oxygen whenever you can't bubble it through the liquid. What happens to the beer that's produced from your production scale propagation process? That beer um, is just like normal beer, as long as it passes all of our other like QA checks, you know, like our analytical lab or our sensory panel. Um, we're able to just like move it independently. We don't need to blend it or anything. And yeah, it's just a standard beer after that. Okay. Cool. Um, do you always use the same uh, wort for propagation? Um, in the lab, we typically use the same wort. Um, in our case, we use fat tire wort um, just because the uh, gravity on it is pretty ideal for yeast growth. It's about 14.5 uh, degrees Play-Doh. Um, but whenever we're in that cellar propagation, those larger steps, um, we have a neutral wort recipe that we can use if like our scheduling doesn't work out to use fat tire wort. So we can use either a, a neutral wort or we have other brands that we have tested out to make sure that they're not going to hurt our propagation process. And is that wort hopped usually? I, I guess it probably is on the, in, the, in the larger step, but in the lab? Yeah. Yeah. We just grab regular wort from the brew house. We don't have them brew anything special for us. 
what can you tell us about aeration during those steps? I, I assume you, um, you, you, well, you mentioned earlier that you're, you're using the shaker table in the lab with the baffled flask. Um, for the uh, production steps, step-ups, are you injecting oxygen or is it compressed air during those step-ups? Yeah, so we're using um, bulk O2 for our propagation steps. Um, and we target between 500 and 1500 ppb. Um, whenever we're propagating, because that ideal target is about 1,000 ppb for oxygen. Um, whenever you get to above or below that spec range, you start seeing um, some anomalous uh, stats in your yeast health. Is there anything else you want to mention that's important for your propagation process? Um, yeah, so with that, uh, our target Plato just in general for propagation um, the Play-Doh that we're looking at is 13.5 to 17.1. Um, anything above or below that causes stress to your yeast. So that's generally a good window. Um, with our um, main target being around 15 degrees Play-Doh seems to be like the sweet spot for us. Um, we also want to keep our ABV below 4%. Um, 3.5% would be ideal for us, but um, that's not always attainable. So 4% seems to be a good um, upper limit for that alcohol. Um, and then we also want to make sure that our props don't drop below six degrees Play-Doh because um, once you get below six degrees Play-Doh, that's when all the sh- like simpler sugars are consumed and now you're into the more complex stuff and that's when you start seeing your um, ABV go up. Okay, give us the big picture. How long did it take to get from slant to enough of a harvested crop that could be useful in the brewery? Right. Um, so whenever we're in the lab propagation step, um, our old method took about 96 to 120 hours, depending on what yeast strain we were dealing with. Um, then in the big production scale propagation steps, um, both of those took 30 to 35 hours. And then um, once we pitched it out, it was really brand dependent. Like, you know, a lower gravity beer is not going to take as long to ferment out as like a higher like IPA is going to take. Um, so it could take anywhere from, you know, a week to two weeks for us to see the yeast all the way through, I would say. And what did you perceive to be the main bottleneck in that process? Yeah. So the main bottleneck for us was definitely that laboratory step. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, we were taking 96 to 120 hours for us to propagate just in the lab alone. Um, and so since we were definitely limited, you know, we don't have a ton of flasks to use because, you know, they break, so you have to order more. Um, But, you know, we're limited by the number of flasks we have. um, And even shaker table space is also a limiting factor for us. It was really important for us to be able to increase the laboratory side so we could actually get more props out into the cellar and be able to use uh, for production. Do you know how New Belgium's lab propagation process originated? It seems fairly textbook. Yeah, it is pretty textbook. And honestly, like it worked for us for a while. Like we didn't have any issues with it. We were getting healthy yeast out of all of our propagation. So unless there was an anomaly that occurred, we it worked for us. Like we were kind of in the mindset of, well, if it's not broken, why are why fix it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, as you needed to kind of increase the throughput, where did you start uh, when looking for opportunities to improve that process? 
Yeah. So, you know, it's easy for us in the lab to change the way we do things in the lab, right? Because we don't have to coordinate with production to improve production's policies. So um, we just kind of started off in the lab and we just started off by doing um, a bunch of cell counts to get growth curves on our yeast um, just to see where an ideal spot to step up was, or even like, you know, we weren't even sure if we were stepping up at the most ideal time, which like I said, it was just, it worked well for us. So we never really investigated. Let's hear more about those curves that you built. What did you learn there? Yeah. So um, there's kind of three main stages in yeast growth whenever we're talking about propagation. Um, the beginning of propagation is called the lag phase. So you're not seeing a ton of cell growth because at this point, the cells are just starting to take up some of the nutrients like the sugars in their environment and some of the oxygen and just starting to get started with their uh, um, cellular reproduction. Um, once they get going, though, they enter into what's called exponential phase. And this is where we see the cell growth take off at an exponential rate. Um, so we're seeing a lot more cell division. And um, this is when a lot of the sugars are getting consumed is in this middle phase. Once those more simple sugars are mostly consumed, we enter into what's called the stationary phase. And that's when we see uh, cell growth start to slow down again. And this is kind of when the yeast starts to um, stagnate a little bit. So they're not as um, vigorous in their growth. Um, and so we were... Um, predicting that if we step up in that more exponential phase rather than towards the end of propagation in the stationary phase, that this would actually help shorten propagation times and it would also help keep our yeast health um, higher because we're not letting it slow down towards the end there. We're just keeping it going and just constantly feeding it. Okay, so earlier um, you, you mentioned that you weren't really sure if you were um, kind of targeting the optimal time. Did um after you 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 did these counts and built the growth curves, did that bear out? Did you did you realize that you were you were kind of a little um, ahead or behind the curve, so to speak? Yeah, for sure. Um, we found out that when we were stepping up in that first uh, step in the lab process, that 150 milliliter step, um, we were stepping it up at 48 hours after shaking. Um, and we found out that the ideal time would actually be between 30 and 40 hours. That's about right in the center of that exponential phase. So we were stepping them up right at the beginning of stationary phase. So it definitely wasn't the ideal time for us to be stepping our yeast up. Obviously, during propagation, we want to produce as much biomass as possible and aren't interested in ethanol production like we are when we're producing beer. Do you want to say anything about those trade-offs or that sort of balancing act during propagation? Yeah, for sure. Um, so brewing yeast is crabtree positive, which means that it can produce ATP using both cellular respiration and fermentation. Um, and a lot of people assume that the defining factor in that is your oxygen. Um, but in reality, it's actually how much sugar you have available for the yeast to consume that determines if it's going to do cellular respiration or fermentation um, because respiration produces more ATP or like the energy it uses to continue on as a cell, whereas fermentation produces less. So if there's more sugar, it's going to go down the fermentation pathway because it doesn't need to produce as much um, ATP per molecule of sugar. Um, so whenever you're looking at, 
uh, propagation, you obviously want a higher cell mass, as you stated before. Um, so with that, if you add oxygen in the fermentation pathway, it's actually going to focus its energy more on producing more cells rather than producing alcohol. Um, so that's why we add the oxygen during propagation and we keep it in a wort with um, certain sugar concentrations in it to make sure that we're getting a good cell mass out of it. Coming up. The way you treat your yeast and your prop carries over into your future generations and harvests and everything. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is brought to you by RAR Malting Company, celebrating 175 years of the malt of reputation. Since 1847, RAR Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers everywhere. Now offering Dextrin Malt to help you boost mouthfeel and haze in your IPA or to show off a jiggly foam stand on a pills. Available exclusively at bsgcraftbrewing.com. Are you looking to diversify your portfolio to include non-alcoholic beer or hard seltzer? You can do both with Alpha Laval's low-alk and de-alk technologies. Whether through membrane filtration or vacuum stripping, Alpha Laval's innovative solutions are designed to provide gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages so your customers can experience the best that your brand has to offer. Visit alphalaval.us slash mbaa to learn more. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Louis meets October 13th at the Schlafly Taproom. District Northwest meets in Olympia October 21st and 22nd. District Georgia meets at Round Trip Brewing in Atlanta October 22nd. District Eastern Canada has a webinar on the best practices in dry hopping October 25th. The District Midwest Technical Conference is October 28th and 29th. District Philly meets November 4th and 5th at the Wyndham in Old City. District Great Plains meets November 11th and 12th at Free State Brewing in Lawrence. District Rocky Mountain meets November 12th in Glenwood Springs. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you.
Now back to the show. Let's hear about the proposed new and improved way forward. Yeah. So after we did all of those growth curves where we found out that we were stepping up at the beginning of our stationary phase, we proposed that the only change that we should really make is um, stepping up that first 150 milliliter flask between 30 and 40 hours after we started it. Um, And so when we looked into it, like what that meant over the course of a year, you know, we do about 200 props a year at New Belgium. Um, So that's saving us about 200 days because we're shaving off about 24 hours from our propagation time um, with the way this new proposed method. All right. Well, I guess uh, lay out the trials for us. How did you, how did you, how did the experiment look like here? Yeah. So with this, um, we based our sample size um, off of what production needed. You know, we didn't want to be like, Hey, production, we're doing this um, test. So why don't you, do what I need you to do. Like we're still producing beer and trying to sell beer, so we can't really disrupt them. Um, so we uh, got a control group of 25 props using the traditional method, where we uh, shook the 150 milliliter flasks for 48 hours. Um, then we kind of broke it up into two different variables. So we had 15 props on uh, that we stepped up after 30 hours of shaking, um, and then we had. 21 props that we stepped up after 40 hours. And once again, that was just based off of production's needs. Uh, We didn't want to tell them to rewrite the whole schedule just so we could get um, different sample sizes. So um, yeah, so it was a total of 61 propagations um, that we looked at for this study. And as any large brewery with resources would do, you didn't just look at how your propagation was affected, but you also studied this all the way out to 10 plus fermentation cycles, right? Correct. Yeah. So we um, were looking at yeast uh, health stats throughout the whole propagation uh, period, but then we were also looking at our fermentation hours and our harvest stats uh, for multiple generations after that. Because we've seen um, whenever we have an anomaly occur during propagation, we'll actually see that affect our yeast health, you know, in the second or third generation. And whereas in the first generation, it might not be affected. All right, so um, let's get into the results. Uh, what what did they look like? Uh, talk about what changed as you manipulated the timing of those first steps. Right. So, um, in the laboratory side of things, um, when we shortened the amount of time that we propagated in that hundred and fifty milliliter flask, we saw less cells, um, which makes a lot of sense, right? You have more time, you get more cells. Um, so we weren't really surprised by this. Um, in the 30-hour props, we got 114 million cells per mil. In the 40-hour prop, we got 191 million cells per mil. And then in the 48-hour prop, we saw 222 million cells per mil. So between the 30-hour prop and the 48-hour prop, it was about a 50% difference in cell mass. Um, but we didn't see um, any change when it comes to viability. All of the viabilities were like 98 to 99%, which is pretty good um, for viability. Then in the next step up, that uh, one liter step up, um, we also saw that the props that had been in the first step for 30 hours, um, it had a lower cell count in this step as well. 
at 134 million cells, whereas the props that were able to shake for 48 hours um, in the second step, they were at 169 million cells per mil. And this also wasn't a huge surprise either, because, you know, if you start with more cells, you'll end up with more cells. Um, But the one thing to point out here is that it's only about um, a 10% difference between the 30-hour prop and the 48-hour prop. So those differences are starting to even out here. And like with the previous prop step, um, we did not see any major impact to our viability um, in this stage. Okay, cool. So it seems like you kind of made up some ground in that second um, step up then. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, All right. What happened once you got to the uh, actual production step ups? Uh, Yeah. So with production, um, you know, we're targeting a um, cell count. So, you know, looking at how many cells brew isn't going to really tell us anything because it should all be the same at this stage. Um, So here we're looking at hours to count. Um, We wanted to make sure that by shortening the number of hours that we had in the lab, we weren't going to extend the amount of time that we're going to see in the cellar once we move on to the larger step-up size, Um, because that's kind of defeating the whole purpose of this project, which was to increase efficiency. Um, So we looked at the hours to count in um, both the first step up and the second step up in the production scale size. Um, And for both cases, um, they were all about the same amount of time, um, being 34, 33, and 34 hours for all three variables in both steps. So, you know, we didn't really see a difference when it came to hours to count once we got to production scale propagation. And our viabilities were also Um, all about 98, 99% again. So there wasn't an impact um, to our viability either. That's good news. Okay, so what was the difference in your total process time then? Yeah, so, you know, another thing that we were really interested in is, um, you know, fermentation hours for some of our core brands. Because once again, if you are saving time in the lab, but then extending time in your cellar, you're not really helping your efficiency. So um, in this instant, we looked at fat tire hours. Um, With the um, old method, the 48-hour first step, uh, we had an average of 85.8 hours uh, for fermentation. Um, And then with the props that were 30 or 40 hours, it came back to being 82.5 hours. So that's a difference of about three hours per fermentation, which doesn't sound huge right off the bat, um, but we brew about 250 tanks of fat tire a year. So this actually saves saves us upwards of like 900 hours per year, which is about 38 days in our cellar. So that actually shaved off a ton of time for us to be able to turn those tanks around. Um, And we saw a similar trend whenever we looked at the harvested yeast with this. So Whenever we pitched a fat tire with harvested yeast using the old method, the 48-hour method, um, those fermentation times were 84.7 hours. And with the new method, the 30 to 40-hour propagation step up, those um, went down to 80.6 hours. So with that case, we shaved four hours off. So we actually saw an increase in efficiency in our fermentation times as well whenever we shaved hours off the lab. All right, more good news. Did the yeast harvested from those first production runs look any different? Not really, no. Um, There was a slight difference in um, cell concentration 
With the 48-hour propagation method, we saw about 950 million cells per mil in that first harvest, Um, whereas with the 30-hour, we saw about um, 770 million cells per mil. Um, But this was actually, uh, we were able to determine that this was brand dependent because once again, like I stated earlier, we didn't want to tell production to change um, their scheduling based off of this project. And so a lot of those 48-hour um, props got pitched into um, our IPA brand. Um, so like a higher gravity, which meant that they got a higher cell mass uh, just because there was more sugar for them to consume. Um, and then the 30-hour ones went into uh, mainly fat tires. So that's why um, there was a difference in cell mass. It's not necessarily due to the um, propagation method. Um, but in terms of viability and vitality, we didn't really see huge differences between the two stats whenever we harvested. Um, our viabilities were all in the low to mid 80s, and then our vitalities were all um, upper 70s to low 80s as well. So no differences there. I'm assuming this led to some permanent process changes at New Belgium. Uh, anything else you want to mention uh, about any of that? Um, Yeah, so we were able to uh, repeat this on our other yeast strains. We use four different strains of yeast just in our regular production schedule. Um, So we were able to repeat this test with all of those strains. So we are now able to um, dial in our propagation methods based on strains. So like our lager strain takes longer. So we're going to give it more on that 40-hour side whenever we schedule it versus um, our Belgian strain grows really, really fast. So that's going to be more on the 30-hour side whenever we step things up. Um, So with that, we're seeing better um, yeast stats just because we're treating our yeast right from the beginning. You know, that, that's a good segue to something I was going to um, bring up anyway. At the, at the Brewing Summit, um, you talked a little bit about sort of, um, I guess, what I'll refer to as uh, propagation karma. Um, why don't you say something about that? Um, yeah, so basically with that, just the way you treat your yeast and your prop carries over into your um, future generations and harvest and everything. So um, the better you can treat your yeast from the get-go, the better yeast you're going to have. And we've even been able to see that we're able to use it for more generations than we thought we were able to use just because we are kinder to our yeast, I guess. We have better karma in the long run. Um so yeah, it, it was just a really interesting thing to see that, oh, we had this like weird anomaly or blip or even just like improving our processes um, and how that affected our yeast long term. We've mostly avoided talking about temperature this whole time. I'm sure you must have looked at you know that as a, as a separate variable and um, being able to manipulate that some as well. Um, maybe tell us what you can about temperature. Yeah, so with with temperature, um, the higher temperature that you have, the faster your yeast is going to grow. And whenever you lower your temperature, the yeast is going to slow down in its growth. For the purpose of this test, we wanted to limit variables just so we could determine like, yes, this one change affected all of these other things. Um, But we have definitely um, been like, hey, we need this crop to grow faster than we usually want it to grow. So we're actually just going to start it off at one to two degrees higher than we typically propagate at. Um, The main thing you want to watch out for there is you don't want to start at like, let's just give an example of like 18 degrees Celsius and then say, hey, I want to bump it up to 21 degrees Celsius to get it going. 
because that um, change after it's been at the lower temperature can actually kind of whiplash your yeast a little bit. And that um, you'll see that affect your stats later on. Like that's kind of what I was talking about with the yeast karma earlier, where an anomaly in propagation will affect your yeast further down the line. So whenever we see our temperatures get out of whack, um, we'll actually notice yeast health um, detriments further on down the road. And do you find that some strains are, are more resilient to that than others? Yes, we do um, definitely have strains uh, where we're like, if a temperature anomaly happens in propagation, we're like, yeah, it'll be fine. Keep moving forward. And then there's other strains where, you know, the anomaly will happen and we go, yeah, this isn't good. Uh, we can see if it rides out, but we don't have a lot of hope. And usually we're correct on that. So it is definitely strain dependent. Anything else you want to add to sort of the overall impact this project had at New Belgium? So with our traditional laboratory propagation method, um, in the lab, we spent 96 to 120 hours total um, with this method. And once again, it was strain dependent. So like our lager strains take longer to grow. So it's going to be more on the 120 hour side, whereas uh, Belgian strain is going to be more on the 96 hour side. Um, but with this new proposed method that we have since adopted, we were able to shorten that to 74 to 100 hours in the lab from the 96 to 120. So we really did shave off a lot of time, about 24 hours per propagation, which is huge in a big production facility like New Belgium, where, you know, every second counts some days. <laughs> that was Paige Lasondak here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for links. And if you haven't already done so, go make some yeast growth curves for the strains used in your brewery. You'll be glad you did. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Oh, 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 oh,